All right. You've turned to Matthew 18, I suppose. Now, we have visited, we're visiting, rather, Matthew 18. We're going to visit a number of other places, really, because Paul, he brought up this whole issue of the ministry of restoration in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and uh, this responsibility that we have as believers. It, It really is not optional for us to do our best to restore, to recover those that are in unrepentant sin. And um, so we're coming to Matthew chapter 18 to look at uh, Jesus's uh, more defined instruction about this in hopes that he would equip us to be good at this. It's important to be good at the ministry of restoration. It can be done very wrongly. Maybe you've been the victim of that. Uh, Typically, I believe it's done correctly, and most of us, uh, perhaps even without even knowing it, have been uh, a a product of that. How many guys have been confronted uh, for sin in your life? And I don't mean like fornication or adultery. I mean for talking to your wife in a way that you shouldn't talk or anything like that, that somebody calls you out on it. Yeah, so you've been involved. Um, I've had the pleasure of having one of my elders confront me. It's always fun, and, uh, and having to apologize and to repent, it's healthy. It's, it should be a normal practice uh, within the body of Christ, because last time I checked, all of you are a bunch of sinners, and, uh, and it's needed. I need it, and uh, love compels us to do that. So last week, uh, in kind of getting this, the whole ball rolling in this, we established what really a biblical standard Uh, consisting of three categories that would justify addressing uh, a believer's sin. Again, those three categories are failure uh, in essential theology. That's truth about God. We cannot mess with who God is. Amen? He is who he is. Anything else is idolatry. Uh, Failure in essential doctrine. That's the truths of Scripture. That's truth about the Scriptures. And then failure in essential ethics, uh, biblical morality. Failure in any one of these categories justifies an encounter with a person. Now, mind you, some people are new believers and they're just learning to get it right. And so this is just a normal part of discipleship. They're learning who God is. They're learning how God behaves. Um, They're learning what the scriptures teach in in regard to Christian doctrine. Uh, They're... They're on the way, so we want to show extreme care for them, amen, and bring them along. Other people, they've, they've been in the faith for a long time, and they've, they've been watching YouTube too much, and uh, they have some harebrained theology that they've adopted. Um, that needs to be addressed quickly. YouTube is a bad place, sorting out some of the garbage. It's a good place too, but there's just so much stupidity on there. Um, the question now is... How does one go about this ministry of restoration? Well, it actually depends on who the sinner is and what the sin might be. Some people have taken Matthew 18 and used it as the umbrella for everything. It's not not right, and we'll talk about that. But it it is super important, uh, this here. But um, we have some more categories uh, in regard to how this takes place. So depending on who it is and, and what the sin is, so we have the, the, the sins of the laity, we have the sins of the leadership, divisive people. These are all categories that, that are given to us in the New Testament. We'll, we're not going to get to all of them today. Uh, so divisive people and then heretics, false teachers. They're 
they're the most fun, those guys. Uh, but today we want to hear directly from Jesus regarding what, we, what we're going to call the protocol for addressing the sins of the laity. Um, uh, the old word, laity, refers to those in the fellowship that don't have a particular office in the church, such as pastor or elder. Yeah, there's a difference in the way that you treat them. Uh, pastors and elders do not get nearly the amount of mercy that the laity does. And so the, the protocol is a little different. Uh, we'll get to that hopefully next week or the following. Um, yeah, sins of the laity. I do wish I had a different word for that. Uh, you know, procedure, policy. If I use the word rule in Calvary Chapel, I'll have mutiny. So I'm not sure which word is the best. Jesus' instruction, uh, his commandment. That's uh, probably a good way to look at it. For this end. So the laity. Well, if, let's, uh, let's read our text. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from the New King James Version, Matthew 18, verses 12 through 20. Matthew 18, verses 12 through 20. Jesus speaking. <clears throat> he says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And I love that text because not just describing Jesus' heart, but he's taking that illustration from you know, Israeli culture, that this is just something shepherds do when one sheep goes astray. And now he's going to take that and, and impose it onto the church. It should just be something that we do when one among us strays, as we go after them. Love compels us. So here's the instruction. <clears throat> Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that his teaching is just so easy to understand, so clear. And Lord, now as we look at it, I pray that the clarity would dawn upon us, but more important than that, the authority of it. As Jesus himself said, all authority has been given to me. These words are from the Lord, and we want to hear them, and we want to live by them, Lord, for the good of your people. So help us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. That, that's a good interruption there. All right. The entire section is, is very instructive, isn't it? It's just point for point, very clear. This is what you do. This is the result that you're looking for. Uh, it outlines nicely. Uh, I don't usually do alliterations. Sometimes they're distracting to me, but I couldn't help it. This one kind of comes out of the text by itself, so I will use it. 
If uh, alliterations are helpful to you for notes, use them. Uh, if not, close your eyes. Ignore the screen. So I'll explain it as we go. Um, the outline is mostly derived from verse 15, where uh, most of the instruction is actually given, because as you go through the text, it potentially reverses back to verse 15. Uh, when, of course, whenever there's repentance, it bears on the whole section. I read to you verse 12 uh, through 14, because that is the primer for uh, this whole discussion. Uh, it, it establishes, I think, that it prescribes a heart and a motive uh, before we get into talking about confronting people. Uh, the heart, the motive, is to reach people, is to recover them, uh, never to push them away. Pushing them away, it may come to that, but that is not the desire of the person that is doing the work of restoration. Okay. Um, if you don't premise it with the story of the shepherd and the sheep, you probably, um, <clears throat> because you love to be confronted, will get a negative kind of vibe from the text. So I think that that's important. Um, there, I think there are certainly negative aspects of this, but it turns out to be a healthy thing for the church. Um, a happy ending is not always secured, but sometimes an unhappy ending is necessary, right? It's necessary. Um, yeah. Uh, the majority of all cases, though, are, are happy endings. And I believe that the more we obey Christ's instruction here, and the more consistent we are with it, the more happy endings we'll have. Any church that does not practice a healthy degree of church discipline uh, is a curse to itself. And uh, it's, it's just asking for trouble. And so we want to know this. We want to be good. We want to be good at it. I like the illustration there as well because it kind of reminds us of Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Uh, all means all. And we need somebody to come alongside of us to bring us back. So here's the biblical protocol from the Lord. So verse 15 again. Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So in accord with the outline, Jesus, he creates a scenario where we become conscious. We become conscious of a believer's sin. And it's when we become conscious that it calls for a confrontation, uh, which, by the way, doesn't require us to be confrontational. You know the difference, right? Uh, to address someone, to uh, call out someone, doesn't have to be in an obnoxious manner. It doesn't have to be aggressive. Okay? The confrontation is needed, <clears throat> but conf being confrontational should be excluded. It's just a recipe for the unhappy ending. Jesus calls for this confrontation to be confidential. Confidential. And I would say that the one thing, not the only thing for sure, but one of the, the things that spoils the ministry of restoration is the lack of co confidentiality. Uh, concealing a matter is essential in this whole thing. Uh, if you want to wreck your objective, uh, blab it to someone else. Okay? Keep it to yourself. Keep it confidential. And then if the sinning believer concedes to our rebuke, confessing their sin, seeking repentance, Jesus says, we've gained our brother, our sister back again, and then we should celebrate. Isn't that what the shepherd did? When he recovers the one sheep, he rejoices. 
he rejoices. But after multiple encounters with him and no repentance is secured, this unrepentant person <clears throat> must be excluded, just as in that culture they would exclude a heathen, which is a pagan, and a tax collector from the fellowship. Okay? So there's your outline, a brief explanation of it. Let's look at the details. <clears throat> First, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. Now, to begin with, we can safely assume that Jesus includes a sinning sister as well. Ladies, you don't get a free pass on sin. Okay, Equal opportunity here. The word for sin, of course, means to uh, miss the mark. It's, a, it's an archery term. Uh, you have your target, and, and uh, you draw your bow, and you, you let it fly, and it misses. Uh, that's the the word picture here, if you will, for sin, for missing the mark, to failing at a moral standard. And we've already set the mark according to our three categories of theology, of doctrine, and morality. Now, the part of Jesus' statement here that many people stumble over is where Jesus says, if they sin against you, if they sin against you. This is taken by some to mean that if a sinning brother or sister did not sin against me personally, then I have no business or duty to confront them for their sin. That has been thrown in my face before. But I can counter. <laughs> if that is true, what they're saying, if that is what Jesus meant, then Samuel had no business to confront Saul every time that he made a blunder. Nathan had no business confronting David over murder and adultery. Peter had no business confronting Ananias and Sapphira for deception. The Corinthian church had no right to confront a fornicator. Paul had no right rebuking Peter for misleading the disciples. Paul was wrong for discipling Hymenaeus and Alexander, and Titus would be out of line for rebuking the believers in Crete. Shall I go on? The Bible is very clear okay, that we have this obligation. <clears throat> in the examples I gave, none of the people who did the confronting in those passages were directly sinned against. The, the statement in verse 15 is not, uh, cannot be used for a rebuttal. It doesn't stand. Jesus is just providing a general outline without being too specific. Okay, he's talking, a, it's a broad brush. But the example of Scripture is that each of us have the responsibility to go someone, whether they're sinning directly against us or not. If I see one of the men in the church being condescending to his wife, expect me to confront you. If a wife is being critical of her husband, I'm going to say something. Is that fair enough? Okay, so don't do that. And if you catch me doing it to Shandy, lay hands on me, okay? Uh, just go all out. <laughs> also, um, a number of you have probably reading out of the NIV and the NASB. The ancient manuscripts that those come from don't even have the rest of that uh, section, or not the section, but the statement. Theirs just says, if your brother sins, go tell him his fault. Very interesting. It's not even there in those ones. So as Christians, I think we need to understand that our sin is a family interest. It's a family matter. Uh, we're all individual members of Christ's body. So when we sin, we sin as a member of that body. Isn't that the doctrine of the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and other places. It involves the whole body. <clears throat> How much of your body gets involved when you stub your toe? Your mouth gets involved. <laughs> your eyes are involved. Your hands are involved. Everybody gets involved because it's a part of your body. Well, we are the body of Christ. Okay? 
When you sin, it's a family matter. Not every little sin, but when it comes to the three categories that we've talked about in, in an essential degree, yeah. When one member of our body is in distress, the whole body responds. That is a healthy body. In fact, if you stub your toe and the other members don't respond, there's probably a medical condition for that. Okay? There's a malady in you. And if the body of Christ is not concerned for the other members of, its, of the body, there's a malady here. There's a problem. And then it seems that the whole church needs to be addressed. <clears throat> All right. Examples of the whole congregation getting involved. Real quick. In Exodus 32, <clears throat> excuse me, when the Israelites worshipped the golden calf, uh, first, that sin wasn't directly against Moses, but when Moses came down the mountain, he said basically to everyone, who is on the Lord's side? Because he was going to use them to discipline the rest of the congregation. And uh, sadly, only the tribe of Levi stood up, which was a day of redemption for them uh, after the curse in Genesis 49. And so through that act of valor, the Levites received the Levitical ministry, and out from that was the priesthood. Good came out of it. The man who violated the Sabbath in the wilderness, the man who blasphemed in the wilderness when fighting with an Israelite, all these were held accountable by the congregation, the whole congregation, even though the sin wasn't against them. In Joshua 7, the sad story of Achan, when he stole the accursed Babylonian garment, the silver and the gold, things put under the ban, it was the community of Israel that held him accountable. In fact, even in the Old Covenant, the law of Moses commanded the people, saying, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. Leviticus 19, 17. So where unrepentant sin was discovered among the children of Israel, God required someone to confront and rebuke them. If they did not, the community would bear that sin collectively. So listen carefully. It was sin to not confront the neighbor for their sin. It was a sin to just despise them in your heart for what they had done. So remaining quiet, that's not an option that God gives to his people when there is, you know, the old saying, there's sin in the camp. Something must be done. Same in the New Testament. Uh, in accord with Jesus' words here in Matthew 18, the whole church in 1 Corinthians 5 was called upon to hold a sinner accountable who was having sex with his stepmother. Yeah, so everyone's individual sin is against everyone else in the body, and the body is responsible to do something about it. Okay? So in keeping with the context of the whole Bible, as soon as we are conscious, conscious of a believer's unrepentant sin, Jesus commands us to address it, to go to our brother or sister. That burden, responsibility, falls upon us. And that responsibility is, Jesus says, to tell them their fault. This is a load of fun right here. To catch a brother or sister in sin and then have to detail it to them, to confront them. Okay? To be clear about the sin that you've witnessed, whether it's a failure in theology, doctrine, or Christian morality. Of course, uh, the most, I think, explosive one is catching a, a believer in a moral calamity, because the defensiveness can be unbearable. Yeah, we have to call him out, though. And so the question I think that's important is, what manner do we do it in? Jesus doesn't exactly say, but I think that we have his example. We know his character. We know that he was meek. 
We know that he was humble. He was also direct and truthful. Uh, we are required to share the truth in love. Um, you remember Peter, and his, his peculiar sin is interesting to me because Jesus had said that if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. Peter denied him three times in front of men. And then in John 21, Jesus very gently and firmly basically said, Peter, you belong to me and you're going to love on my sheep. You're going to tend them. You're going to care for them. So he restores Peter to a position in, as an apostle. It's very sweet. Paul, as we've already discussed in Galatians, that our encounter with a sinning believer ought to be in a spirit of gentleness. Galatians 6.1 uh, that is humility. Also, Paul says in another place, without quarreling, but with patience and humility. That's 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25. We've already mentioned Ephesians 4, 15, that our job is to speak the truth in love. Some of us just like to speak the truth. Uh, we need to step back and reevaluate, and uh, we need to be, have some love poured into us, some tenderness, some charity, and then go at it again. Now, this whole issue of tenderness, of charity, of love, it's not to the exclusion of firmness or sharpness even, depending on the situation, as it was called for in the church in Crete. Paul said to Titus, Cretans, they're gluttons, they're liars and lazy beasts. Rebuke them sharply. It was time. Okay? I don't know what had happened before that conversation, but apparently... Paul was either there or Titus had been there long enough and it wasn't being communicated firmly enough, sharp enough. So Titus, Paul says to Titus, just drop the hammer on him, okay? Uh, they can't be lazy. They can't be evil beasts and the rest. Uh, not a good thing. So it, it is discernment that is needed to know how to approach the unrepentant. You know, some people are so beat up and broken by sin that there's no need for sharpness. That's just not needed. What they need is for someone to come alongside of them, to be honest with them, but to help them up and out of the mess that they've made. Some people, all you do is just by addressing it, they crumble. That's not a time to kick them, okay? It's a time to, to seek full and true repentance from them, but then to, to bear them up, okay? Others, though, of course, they need some good, firm, authoritative cease and desist. Repent or else. We have authority for that. Jesus uh, gave some of that in Revelation 1 through 2 to the churches. He said, repent or else. And at the other end, you know, we, we find the psalmist in 145 verse 8 saying, the Lord is gracious and he's compassionate. He's slow to anger and rich in mercy. And we ought to be the same. But we don't also, we don't want to be hasty to confront the unrepentant. We want to be prompt, but not hasty. There's a difference. When you're hasty, you don't give it any thought. You don't think it through. We should give it some thought. We should pray about it. We should ask God for direction. We should, we should seek counsel, of course, without revealing the sinner's identity. And then we should go at it. Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says, such private reproof is hard to do, but it is the way of Christ. Yeah. And I would add that if Christ is Lord, he cannot be ignored. If he has commanded us to participate in the ministry of restoration, we cannot ignore him. If we ignore him, and we fail in this regard, we have disobeyed his command, and we've sinned against our brother or sister who needed us. We are our brother's keeper. We are. And so after we've become conscious of someone's sin and we're determined to confront them, Jesus says to do it in private. 
The whole thing should be confidential. It is not our place to uh, confess the sins of others. Something I'm always trying to train my children. They're always eager to tell me what somebody else has done wrong. You, you, you experience that? Well, I experience it with the church as well, so there. <laughs> but it's not our place to do that. And we should never blab it to the church when we're about to rebuke so-and-so for their transgressions. And even if someone's sin has become public on Facebook, which is very common, it is not for us to publicize it further, nor is it right for us to rebuke them on that public platform. Makes me want to scream. I don't look at Facebook anymore because I was screaming too much. <laughs> Shandy come bust in the room. What's wrong? <laughs> you can't believe what these people are doing. <laughs> if you rebuke someone publicly on that platform, you have violated Jesus' command to keep it private, and you've publicized it prematurely and to the wrong audience. And guess what? Now you should be rebuked for sin. That's crazy. Remember what Paul said. He said, be mindful of yourself, lest you also be tempted. Galatians 6.1. In your zeal for truth, or by your ethical convictions, you might violate the command of Christ. We, we must be careful that our zeal or our sincerity does not supersede Jesus' instruction. We should not disobey Christ as we confront someone for disobeying Christ. Yeah. You know, something you have to get used to is you do this as a well-informed sinner might throw it in your face, which complicates things in the ministry of restoration. So we need to do the right thing in the right way, which means doing what Jesus says the way Jesus says to do it. And Jesus, here in the text, he initially grants people privacy, confidentiality, and we should do the same. We must go to them alone the initial encounter, we might say, should be a covert operation that keeps their sin in confidence. You know, I've seen too many good friends divided over a breach of confidence. Too many believers pushed away for lack of discretion with information. Too many people share the sins of others with their spouse or a friend. And according to Jesus, your spouse or your friend, they are not privy to that information. They are not privy. I lost one of my closest friends because he thought he was privy to someone else's sins, which I would not disclose to him. We don't talk anymore. Not, not because of me, um, but I refuse to disclose information about someone else, and they just thought that they were privy to that because we were friends. You see, we do not somehow avoid being a talebearer or a gossip when we share confidential information with our spouse or a friend. You know, who gave you the right to share that information? And who gave your spouse or friend the right to know that information? Is there some unwritten rule I'm not aware of? I don't know of one. Whoever conceals a transgression promotes love, but whoever gossips about it separates friends. Proverbs 17, verse 9. Whoever conceals a transgression promotes love, but whoever gossips about it separates friends. You know, some people are deeply ashamed of themselves for their sin. You've probably been there, and when they discover that you've shared their sin with others, it can shame them to the point where, they, where you lose a brother, you lose a sister, or you push someone away from the church permanently, because it's not a safe place. And I know churches can be that way. I've seen it. So the whole thing should be private initially. The other danger that you'll face while confronting others is their pride. If you confront me about sin, the first response from me that you should expect is my pride. It's just the truth of humanity. Okay, we're proud at heart. And if you scratch at that, I'm going to protect myself initially. 
Now, give me some time, okay? Give me some time. But if you want to provoke someone's pride and put them on the defense, nothing does it more than putting them on the spot in front of others or sharing the details with others. If your goal is to restore them, be quiet. Keep it to yourself. Public shame is hard for anybody. Biblically, it's the last resort. Now, another thing that needs to be addressed is the issue of gender. It should be considered, and those distinctions, they have to be recognized, and they have to be honored by God's people. If you become conscious of someone's sin who is the opposite gender, prudence, <laughs> prudence is required. You must be cautious, okay? People caught in sin can do unexpected things. Some people do crazy things. They can often try to drag you into their sin because sin loves company. More the merrier. If they're more involved, it feels more justifiable. They can accuse you of something, or worse, especially when it's from the opposite gender. Uh, a former elder of mine was called to someone's house because a child was left alone with uh, the mother who was very intoxicated. And according to our protocol, he could not go alone, so I tagged along. And when we were there at the house, the woman was being flirtatious, aggressively. Now, that's not a good situation. But imagine if my elder had gone by himself. There could be accusations. There could be temptation. There could be a whole host of problems. So a protocol here as well, a rule, we don't meet uh, with women alone. Uh, I tell Roger, if, if I see you meeting with a woman alone, you're fired. Um, we just don't do that here. You remember that, Roger? He loves his job, so he doesn't do that. <laughs> okay? <laughs> but I can address them privately in a public setting where onlookers are present, but they're unconscious of what's being discussed. We can do that. I've confronted women in a public setting, even in this church, on a Sunday morning while keeping the conversation private. Okay? Be discreet, be wise. But too much can go wrong when opposite genders are alone in private, especially in this context. So be very careful. Okay? A marriage, a reputation, a church can be destroyed over one incident, even if it's a false accusation. We have to be wise. Another thing to consider that should have the same guidance is where the genders are the same and one or both struggle with same-sex attraction. Being alone in that context is not an option. Okay? So too much privacy is not prudent. Finally, after we've confidentially confronted the unrepentant, we wait for a response from them. We wait. We confront and we wait. I know that what we want in an ideal world is that we confront their sin, we detail it to them, and they break down and cry and they apologize and they're immediately restored. How many has, has is that true for any of you when you were confronted in sin? You're like, thanks, brother. <laughs> you can't demand an immediate response. Okay? And it doesn't mean that you should go with their initial response. As I said, if you confront me initially, I will probably defend myself. And I'm pretty good at it. Okay? And so are you. Don't necessarily take that. Okay? It's common for people to initially respond with pride and anger. They've just been caught. They're on the defensive. So let them be. Give them some space. Let them sleep on it. You know, give the Holy Spirit room to work in their heart. You know, to rob them of sleep and of pleasure. That's what we want, okay? <laughs> we want that. He's better at it than we are. The Bible says that God, the Lord, disciplines those that he loves. Let him do the work. Give it time. Trust the Lord. Don't be too demanding. Now, here in verse 15, Jesus entertains a positive response from the sinner. The person concedes to their fault. 
They've been confronted, they've confessed, they're seeking repentance and restoration. That's ideal, that's the point of it all. And if that is the response that we get, we ought to do what the shepherd does. After he recovers the lost sheep, he rejoices, he celebrates, as I have in the outline from verse 13. Uh, We also have the story of the prodigal son. We don't want to be the other brother when the prodigal son returns. We want to be the father. We want to give a warm welcome. We want to receive them into full fellowship where there's full repentance. Okay. Now, of course, Jesus isn't purely optimistic. He knows sinners very well. Uh, he knows us. So verse 16, verse 16, he says, But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. I can't see the clock. What time? Is that clock wrong? Oh, it's 10.35 right now? No, it's not. I got to get you guys out of here. What's that? A lot of announcements, yeah. Well, then let's stop. Let's stop there at verse 16. That's a great place to stop. I'm sorry. We don't get to kick anybody out of the church today. We love controversy. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. We're never going to get back to Galatians. Maybe that's enough to chew on for the day anyway. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're, we're thankful, Lord, that you, you love us enough to confront us. And you do it by your spirit. He's, he's come to convict us of sin, to convince us that we're out of line with your grace, your goodness, and your standard. And Lord, we want, we want to be like you, not just loving people and wanting to restore people, but we want to we be skillful, Lord, at this ministry. And it is a ministry. So I pray that your words would, would weigh upon us, that we would take them to heart, we would, we would grip the gravity of it. And then, Lord, as we go on with life, we, we work with our brothers and sisters that we would grow in this whole thing. Make us wise, Lord, make us wise. And Lord, as uh, many of us fast this week, um, many not, but I'm, I'm confident that people are praying. Lord, the, the church is yours. And however you would like her to be treated is what we want. However you would see to it that she's equipped for the work of the ministry. Lord, as the culture changes around us, um, I pray that you'd grant wisdom to myself, to my elders, to our church body, Lord, that we could, we could come together, we could be single-minded, and that we'd be motivated by your spirit to do that. And Lord, you would give a skill to navigate and to address and reach, Lord, the current generation, the one that's coming up, that is being indoctrinated with, with moral insanity. And, uh, and Lord, we have challenges here at our church with ministers, not in sin, but lack of. And, and uh, I just pray, Lord, that you would raise them up, one that fills the gap uh, for my weaknesses, Lord, for the weaknesses of the elders, Lord, for the holes that are in our church, what it is that our fellowship needs, Lord, we pray that you would provide it. And, um, yeah. and Lord, I pray as always that you would have the preeminence among us and that your word would be exalted. You've exalted it. Help us to do the same. And Lord, help us to walk by your grace. Lord, thank you for my church family. I do pray that you'd lavish your grace upon them and they'd walk worthy of you. In Jesus' name, amen.